This is Mifra Abid, and you're listening to Across Her Table. It's not often that we get an academician on the podcast, but as I follow Dr. Muna Saleh on Twitter, I felt a sort of affinity for her brand of humor and her fearless takes on social justice issues, particularly the Palestinian struggle for self-determination. Dr. Muna Saleh is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Concordia University of Edmonton. She's a Canadian-Palestinian Muslim woman and a mother, multiple identities that she bears with incredible pride. Her doctoral research focuses on multi-perspectival narrative inquiry, mothering and motherhood, and the conceptions of curriculum. Right now, she's currently researching alongside Muslim refugee mothers of children with disabilities. I also happened to recently read her book called Stories We Live and Grow By, Retelling Our Experiences as Muslim Mothers and Daughters. Now, this all may sound a lot to take in, but Dr. Saleh made it all sound like a breeze when we sat down for a conversation. Where are you from is a question I ask most of my podcast guests as we explore our roots and origins. I wonder what Muna felt about that question, considering the focus of her research. Well, typically, here's the thing. I don't, I don't mind the question. It really depends on who's asking it, the spirit, the context. There's a lot of ifs. So obviously you asking it, I will be honest and tell you a little bit of my history. But for the most part, um, except when people do ask that question of me, because, you know, as a woman in hijab, like the automatic assumption is that you're from somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. You're not from here. And so, and that's not a bad thing, but it's the assumption, right? That gets me. It's the assumption because um, we know that it's a like it's a racial mi- microaggression a lot of the time, and people are making it clear they don't think that you're from here because of your skin color or how you're dressed and all of that. Um, so typically, what I ask my students to do because I'm a pre-service teacher educator is I say rather than asking anybody where you're from, honestly, just ask them what would you like to share about yourself. And that is just the way that you can open that way that it's not you setting the terms and the framing. But, um, but like I said, it really depends on the context. And obviously this podcast is, it's, it's a running theme. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyways, and typically I'm trying, I try to be really facetious and I'll say something like, I'm from the north, I'm from north side. I'm from the north side. Uh, cause here in Edmonton, the north side's known as being <laughs> a little bit more of a tougher area, which I am <laughs> from the north side. <laughs> so anyways, um, so I'll give you a little bit of a, I guess, a um, a history of my family. So I'm going to always, as usual, I always go back to Palestine, to Palestine. Um, even in my writing, in my dissertation, um, that's how I started because it's so integral to who we are um, and to our stories generally that we continue to live. Um, and so Siti Alayrhama was the one who really taught me about our stories. So that's my grandma, Grandma Shifi Alayrhama. And so both sides of my, my, my parents' families grew up uh, because of Safad. So it's like on the outskirts, it's literally village, village on the outskirts of Safad. That's how it translates. And, um, they were really happy from what I understand the family and, you know, like they've lived there for <laughs> as long as I could remember and made a good life. Alhamdulillah. They were pretty well off because they were, um, 
you know, sheep herders and goat herders and, you know, they had orchards. And so um, all the good stuff that uh, they remember from farming and being villagers. And so um, until 1948 and the Nakba, um, no, it's the great catastrophe. That's, that's the, um, the literal translation of Nakba, the, uh, the catastrophe. And when they were expelled and violently um, displaced from their homes by the newly created state of Israel's newly created uh, armed forces. And so they were, my grandmother had a bullet in her back uh, for the rest of her life from that one day. And um, what I remember her telling me, it was in May. Um, and so anyways, they were refugees for the next couple of decades, actually, in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. They ended up settling in the Begah Valley. They walked all the way up in the stories about the tra- the track. My grandma was pregnant with my dad, and then she was shot, and then she was taken care of, but the bullet stayed in her back. So anyways, they ended up making a life, both sets of the grandparents, uh, in the B- Begah Valley. And, uh, yeah, they lived there until my dad ended up coming here through – He's an, he learned a trade uh, as an electric welder because in, in Lebanon to this day, only certain, um, I guess, people, well, of course, citizens. So Palestinians till now are considered refugees in Lebanon. They have never attained citizenship, whether or not they were born and raised there. There's generations now that are still considered uh, refugees. So you can't work in certain trades. You can't go to certain schools. You can't buy land you can't open up certain businesses and so really? this yes still to this day so my dad went to something that was um but we're very well educated because there's all of these education educational institutions that open up for refugees and so alhamdulillah over the years you know many um palestinian children in lebanon have gotten a really good education but it's almost it's heartbreaking because they can't really do much with it unless they travel or they find a way to make it work within the constraints of the system that literally tells them they can't do much and so my dad ended up coming here he was thankfully able to come here on it for to do electric welding in the early 70s and then he went we call it back home even though it's not really home i mean there were still refugees there and um he um yeah, they, he married my mom, and then she came here, and then the late seventies, and then I was born in eighty. My sister Saha was born in seventy nine, and so yeah, so we've lived in Edmonton all my life. So it's almost like you were twice displaced as a family, first yes. from Palestine and then from Lebanon. And I'm I'm really amazed that there were restrictions for refugees on how they could, you know, what professions they could choose. It's just mind boggling. Yeah, and see, here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of people who will give different excuses for it and reasons. They'll say, well, no, they want like for the right of return and all of that. But what, 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 how does that help people who are just trying to live their lives right now? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyways, that is its own discussion for sure. But, you know, and we love, you know, our neighbors in Lebanon. And of course, they're always going to have a connection because this is literally where they were born. They were never treated as citizens, um, ever, you know, not even second class. They were never citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a story we carry, not only the displacement from Lebanon, but not being literally allowed citizenship in the, in the country where they spent the next several decades. And many of our extended family are still there, uh, including my husband's family. 
Did you ever visit Palestine? No. No? I wish. No. Oh. I wish. No. I, uh, there, there's a long history of the why. And I'm not going to really go into much of it. I'm just going to say I never got the chance. Um, some of my family did. And I'm very, very grateful for, the, for that for them. But no, I, when I was younger, it was just not even a possibility. Um, because that we heard stories. And that's another thing is that even though formally they'll say, people will say, oh, you could have went if you wanted to. Well, not really, because here's some of these dimensions that not many people know about, including the fact that even if I was a Canadian citizen, if I had something called a Hawiya, which is a Palestinian identity card that was given to Palestinian refugees, um, a lot of the time you'd either have to hide the fact that you have that and could get in trouble or, you know, no, then your citizenship doesn't really count and you have to use that. It's this complicated mess of, mm. uh, again, just all the, all these limitations that are imposed on you. And so, um, no, I, that's one of my, my dreams. Although I don't think I'd be allowed in considering all of the, <laughs> the posts, all of my posts and that are very, very critical of Israel as a settler colonial state. So inshallah one day. Do you think that the discourse around Palestine has changed in recent times, especially in the West and particularly in Canada? I know it has. I don't think it has. I know it has. I've, I've experienced it throughout my life. Um, and so, so that's why social media is a double-edged sword. I feel like um, there's the fact that I grew up literally saying Palestine was for some a swear word. Like I was saying something awful. So if I say I'm Palestinian, well, you mean Arab. You know, I've actually had teachers saying that to me. I'm like, no, I mean Palestinian. Because they wanted to, there was this narrative that we didn't even really exist um, for many in the West, right? Like that, there, it was the, the great story that was told was a land without a, a land without a people for a people without a land, right? completely erasing the millions who were already living there and who had roots for millennia. Um, but there's also the fact that even other Muslims, right, even other Arabs a lot of the time, because it depended on who you were talking to. So if I told, said that to a, Le a Lebanese person, there was also a lot of stigma around being Palestinian in the Lebanese community. Because mm -hmm. we were known as those that, that literally like started wars or, you know what I mean? There was this, um, story of us also in different communities, depending on what countries we settled in and what happened in those countries after many of us settled. And so it was like navigating a minefield a lot of the time when you were younger. Like, can I say who I am and where I'm from? Or do I just stay quiet and, you know, avoid whatever might come my way? Um, and that's, it's in itself traumatizing, to be honest, because you were just not sure you just saying that I'm Palestinian, what that was going to bring you. You know, I don't know how much of it that has changed and that my perception has changed, too. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to think about it in that way, too, because I wonder how children today, Palestinian ch children today are experiencing it. Um, but I know over the years that I've gotten more bold in my, my assertions. I don't care if somebody's going to get uncomfortable with me saying that I'm Palestinian mm -hmm. or if they're going to, you know, if there's going to be a pushback of some sort and try, again, it's this um, attempt to erase that is so prevalent. And, and sometimes even in academia, it's happened to me. Um, mm -hmm. So 
where people said, well, Palestinian, like, you know, we're literally trying to deny our, literally that we exist. Mm-hmm. I said, well, no, yeah, yeah, I know we're here. Um, but I see maybe because over social media, because I've never been on social media, it's only been these last couple of years that mm-hmm. I've joined, you know, Twitter, especially, and then also on Instagram. Um, I was always somebody that's just kind of buried in my books. That's just, I, that's where I prefer to be. Um, but I, I don't know. I've noticed that there has been quite a shift, like just this morning. Uh, and, um, may he rest in peace, Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching CNN, which I don't know why, like I shouldn't be watching it, but my husband sometimes <laughs> puts it on there and I'm just too lazy to change the channel or to do anything else. So anyways, there was this up, this um, segment on CNN where one of the, um, where the anchor person was talking about Desmond Tutu's um, advocacy for Palestine, literally said the word Palestinian, which on CBC in Canada, they avoid saying, by the way, Palestine. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, on CNN, you know, the fact that they brought this advocacy that many people could, would, could easily try to erase or gloss over, but the fact that they actually were talking about it. Um, I was shocked because that's not typical in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And so, well, at least it hadn't been. Uh, and I think that what happened is that over the years, social media has brought some of the images, the stories, um, the things that mostly only Palestinian or people in, 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 in you know, in other places in the world that don't have that just completely censored because it has been censored from the West for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, like what? some of the, the actions and the and the and the absolute massacres that have occurred hasn't been reported on in the West. You only know because you live there or you know somebody who's lived through it or and and, and so forth. And so I feel like there's been this shift because people like you can't deny what you see with your own eyes. The uh-huh. fact that Israel had no problem in how many you know bombardments against Gaza um whole families whole communities whole buildings and then to do it again at the, towards the end of ramadan it was just another level of evil to be honest it was just another it, they took it to a level like you know and of course we're going to say oh they have the right to self defense and all of that but the thing is though the inhumanity of these children being pulled from the rubble uh, and I know, of course, every life, and it's not just children that were affected, but to see that and to see it being excused away, there's no excuses. Like, you can't deny that that's just another level of, you know, nobody's holding them to account for these war crimes. It's interesting that you bring up Desmond Tutu because there's so many parallels that have been drawn uh, with the Palestinian struggle and the apartheid. A lot of times people say it's almost the same thing and people just refuse to see it as it is. Do you see also that there are some parallels in the way the indigenous narratives were held for a very long time in Canada? I'm very, very wary of trying to make parallels or there are similarities, of course, because they're both settler colonial contexts. Mm -hmm. They're very different settler colonial contexts. And so, of course, you have the indigenous, the struggle of indigenous peoples of those lands, but 
it's a very different type of struggle. So this Canada and what is now known as Canada, the settler state of Canada, um, this has been going on for hundreds of years. This has been propped up, you know, through the settler colonialism of, you know, what is now known as America. And so it's, it's, it's interconnected. Whereas with Palestine, with Palestine, there is another history. It's about, and so I've been reading right now the Hundred Years War on Palestine by Rashid Al Khalidi, mm-hmm. and I'm learning what I lost. So I thought I knew quite a bit of history, to be honest. I'm learning so much of what I didn't know before. So, including you know the anti, sorry, the Zionist movement in the in the late um, 1900s, and um, you know, how the Balfour Declaration connected to that. So I highly recommend reading this. And so just so much of what happened in the lead up to the Nakba, because the Nakba wasn't a singular event. There was a story leading up to it and, and it's ongoing in different ways, right? Um, but the fact that with the Nakba, with the settler colonialist, colonial state of Israel, it's actually connected to, um, Western imperialism, of course, and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, in a different way. So you had now these superpowers, uh, in the West that were, that were funneling support and funds and propping up this, uh, this new settler colonial creation. But also there were many Arab nation states that were, that also helped in that creation in different ways. There's this, it's a complicated, you know, you know, web of lies and deceit and, you know, erasures. Um, mm-hmm. it's, but it was absolutely propped up by that. And it was also, of course, that you can't forget that, uh, anti-Semitism in that, those days also mm-hmm. helped to make this happen. And so there, it's just, it's really, really complex in that sense. But at the end of the day, it's still settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. It's still denying indigenous people their rights for autonomy and for self-determination. And to live in freedom and to, to pursue whatever they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, like I said, I'm very wary of that because it's just different contexts and of mm-hmm. course different motivations and different actors, but it is a settler colonial context for sure. I want to just segue into something else now. Now, when you read your profile, you see that you're an academic, uh, a scholar, an advocate, a leader. And when you think about those terms, you have to expect some very stodgy kind of intellectual personality. But then you go on your Twitter feed and you have this (laughs) barrage of mom jokes and you relentlessly trolling your sisters there. And it kind of makes people think, hey, wait a minute. Something's, something that doesn't go well, doesn't go in my stereotype or my idea of what this person should be like. Yeah. And can you talk about that? How does that work? Like, <laughs> is it like a split personality or is it possible? Or I mean, just what is your take on it? I think it's just all of who I am. I don't think it's split personality. I think it's just there are different parts to who I am. I'm not just like I love reading and I'm a serious reader and a serious academic. But I'm also somebody who will, is really playful, who really likes to laugh, who really th- thinks, finds things ridic- ridiculous. And I will laugh <laughs> beca- because honestly, and I, like I said to you earlier, when we discussed this earlier, I said, honestly, like I sometimes laugh because I'd rather laugh than cry. And so that's just been my healing and my, 
you know, it's, it's just a mechanism that I have because if I didn't do that, it would just be, I'd be in despair. In all mm-hmm. honesty, there's been so much harm and hurt and pain over the last several years. And so if we didn't, like, if I didn't have that to kind of really fall back on is my really, really dark sense of humor. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to continue the work that I do, to be honest, because a lot of my work is talking about, you know, um, the experiences of Muslim women, especially, and Muslim motherhood in particular. And when I go on Twitter, to be honest, I'm taking a break from that. I need mm-hmm. to take a break from thinking so heavily and being so, you know, writing from my heart and, and like literally pouring my heart onto a page because mm-hmm. that is so much emotional labor too. So I go on there to be ridiculous sometimes and to just laugh and to be like making fun of things. And, and that's just the part that I need in that moment. Right. So it really depends on, you know, what I'm, what I'm turning to social media for. And a lot of times it's for the jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're making about 18,000 people laugh, you know, so considering (laughs) your following. I don't know. It's just interesting because it's like, alhamdulillah, like I don't honestly, I tell my daughter because she's like, mom, like she said, I cannot believe because she's close to 19 now too. She follows me and I don't know what her handle is. But she's like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think that's, that's a genius on her part. But she said, uh, she was telling me, she's like, mom, like, do you ever think that there's going to be that many people who like, basically don't care what you have to say? I'm like, no. And I honestly... I think that a big part of why there are people who do, who do think that, you know, I do want to know what this person has to say about things. Um, I'm assuming that's the majority of all. Like, there's going to be hate followers, of course, or people who are like just being nosy and want to know what, you know, I'm up to. But I think that it's um, because I don't fit into those boxes. And I, and I, and I honestly, I refuse to act or perform a version of me that other people are expecting. Whether it's a version of me as a Muslim woman, as a Muslim woman in hijab, whether it's a, like who I should be as an academic, who I should be as a mom, I don't care. I'm tired of performing according to expectations. And I literally wrote about it in my dissertation to say, like, what does it mean to be a good Muslim mother or a good woman or a good whatever? You know, it's just it's these stories of so-called goodness that mm-hmm. I am tired of. And so we're going to do that best that we can. Alhamdulillah, I draw on my faith. I draw on the love and support of my families. But I'm, I refuse to perform for anyone. I am done. Um, I want to move to a slightly different topic here now. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've already mentioned that you don't like to draw parallels between the indigenous experience and the Palestinian experience. Um, I'm just trying to connect with what is like in the mainstream vocabulary these days. Uh, for example, the phrase post-generational trauma. And we talk about that in the context of indigenous people. And I was reading your book and you make references to this. And I think uh, my, my mind at that point was not so well versed with vocabulary in, you know, uh, in, in the field of social justice. And I was like, what is this thing? You know, how can trauma be passed on from one generation to the other? Can you talk a little on that? Intergenerational trauma is literally this idea that, you know, over time, trauma not only is complicated, but it compounds and it, it manifests in different ways. And so for residential school survivors, for example, mm-hmm. you know, 
the ways that they interacted with their own families, with their communities, and that what they the, the scars and so many of them brought home and pain and yeah, and so all of that um, it looks different for different people intergenerational trauma. So, like I said to you, my grandma was pregnant with my dad when she was shot. That has got to do something, you know, to him, to her DNA, to you know, in the ways that it. Not the actual change of the DNA, but you know the ways that some of the, some of that is expressed, and um, and I always wonder about that, to be honest, because she had eleven children, um, and two of them passed away. Ali Haman, Ali Hamasiti, she was a wonderful lady, but you know, they my grandfather had trauma as well. Mm-hmm. This was I'm talking about my dad's side of the family, um, and so I wonder often, and then my mom's side as well. They they also were violently expelled. And so you wonder about them. And um, then growing up as refugees and being told that they were nothing and that they weren't deserving of anything and basically being made fun of. And so all of these things that they grew up with, right? And then also Israeli warplanes flying overhead randomly in different times. And, you know, just all of the things that they had to deal with over their own childhood and youth. And... Um, you know, what is that going to do to people? Like, what does that do to people? How are they treating each other? Right? It's going to, there's a lot of unexpressed anger, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and heartbreak and the ways that it manifests in our families. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that because, yes, we have a lot of love. But there's a lot of trauma that, you know, we haven't really dealt with as, as a family, I don't think, and as a community for sure. Um and especially those that are, it's ongoing. Like so many people, it hasn't left because it's ongoing. Like when I see, and when my parents see, and when my grandparents, all the before they pass away, when they would see the scenes and the videos and the, um, this is never going, it doesn't go away. It's not going to be healed because it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that do to you? Right? Like I could barely function when I was seeing videos and, and seeing, you know, what was happening to, to Gaza in May. Like, I, this is not something that is an abstract thing for many of us. Like, we feel it in our bones. Mm-hmm. Like, so, and so I've been really thinking about that. So I, t- I put on the work originally of Mary Young, Dr. Mary Young. She talked about intergenerational trauma related to residential school survivors. Mm-hmm. And then I also, um, you know, Resma Menachem talked about my grandmother's hands and intergenerational trauma. That was the title of his book, My Grandmother's Hands. And I, I can't, um, I can't recommend that book enough. Like I, some parts really didn't sit well with me, but I kind of like that because it makes me think about things in different ways that I never really thought. And I'm not sure what to think about it. And it makes me, yeah, it challenged me. And then there's, um, also I, I forgot the, f- oh, the Kirk, but he wrote, uh, the body keeps the score. And I, I, I can, Going to it's going to drive me nuts that I I don't remember the author's name very well, um, but the body keeps the score is talking about the science behind it, um, and so I've been really really thinking about intergenerational trauma because I really think about um, curriculum violence because I really bring it forward to uh, curriculum violence and how so it's called Besser van der Kolk. Uh, his name is Besser van der, Bessel van der Kolk for The Body Keeps the Score. But anyways, I'm thinking about curriculum violence, and that is a concept by Dr. Stephanie Jones. Mm-hmm. And to, the ways that we, 
you know, some explicit and some we're not even, we don't even, aren't even aware of in our classrooms. And this the ways that we sometimes um, harm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so for example, some of the extreme examples are when, for example, I don't know if you saw that video around that was making the circles a couple of months ago of that teacher imitating Indigenous, you know, Right. And so I'm actually using that video in my classroom as a pre-service teacher to say, this is an extreme example. Like you shouldn't need anybody to tell you this is wrong, but there's some less extreme, you know, under the surface things. Like, are you actually asking students to build dream catchers just at a tokenistic level? You have no clue what they are. You don't know what the spirituality behind them is. You don't know, you know, who are the peoples of these lands and what is, is this significance to the, to them? Mm-hmm. It's just to do something. Mm-hmm. And so this, these things where sometimes it's actually causing harm because to do that at a superficial level is not helpful to anybody's education. Mm. Um, and especially to the children in that classroom who are Indigenous and who, you know, it's just tokenizing them in their spiritualities. Mm. And so it's just, you wonder, right? Like, what are, and so I always get them to think, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? You better be able to articulate or otherwise it's just, just, it's literally mindless activity. And that's not where, what we're doing in these classrooms. That's not the point of teaching. But why are you doing the things that you're doing? I'm thinking about that term again, curriculum violence. Like, This is a new term for me, and I'm trying to go back to my school days growing up in India as a minority. Uh, And I remember, now it's all coming back to me, there's this teacher, and uh, she was a great teacher, but, you know, sometimes there's some things which really stay back with you. And she kind of uh, picked up on a few Muslim kids in the class, and she's like, did you know that your forefathers were first into Islam? And at that point in grade six, you don't know how to respond to that. And she went in further and said, I have a theory that all the bad and ills that have happened in India is because of the British and the Muslim invaders. Um, And again, as a sixth grader, you just don't know how to respond to that. You start questioning, have my ancestors been all that evil? Uh, And then, you know, unless you have this uh, culture at home to fact check and go back and do your own reading, and alhamdulillah, that was a culture in my home. But I can't imagine how many people went back feeling miserable. Um, like I could speak, go back to my home and speak to my parents. Like my teacher said this, is it true? And my, my parents would provide me with the resources or talk to me about it. But I'm not sure how many actually had that conversation going back home. And now when you say curriculum violence, it's just taking me back to those memories, which um, I haven't thought about in a long time. Yeah. And the thing is, though, I think we all can think of different things. And I tell my students, you can, I guarantee you, you have examples of curriculum violence, things that your teacher did that stayed with you, that hurt you, that caused you pain, that caused you humiliation, that made you embarrassed. It's not always, of course, right? Like, you know, part of like a racist act. There's so many examples. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when you're engaging with students, you realize this, you know, how long has it stayed with you? right? These things. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine, you know, do, like, listen, there's times we're going to contribute. We don't even know. We don't know every everything about every student. We can only do with, you know, you can't, you know, prevent this all the time. But what you could do is be thoughtful about what you're doing, why you're doing it, what you're saying, why you're saying it. Understanding that each interaction is so important to that child, whether or not you recognize it. And so I think it's just 
trying to really think about engagement on a human level, right? Mm-hmm. Like always thinking about, you know, yes, we have report cards due. Yes, I have to be outside for recess in a certain amount of time. Yes, I have. But there, are, there's this is a like profoundly spiritual and human endeavor. Mm-hmm. And so to really think about it in that way, to constantly remind, like, you know, even at the post-secondary level, for example, I said, you, you all see how I'm very, <laughs> like with my students, I'm very careful, mm-hmm. right, with what I say and do and all of that with them. And I say, if I'm doing that with you as adults, mm-hmm. can you imagine, you know, how the importance of this with children, right? Like children who need, you know, to be validated mm-hmm. and to be seen and cared for and you know, accepted and all of who they are. So, And what do you say to people? You just mentioned that you're very careful with your students. And we have this rhetoric that keeps coming. Oh, we have to walk on eggshells all the time. You can't say anything these days. Like, I remember when the Don Cherry um, controversy broke out and I was in a group of people uh, on the table and someone said, oh, you can't even say anything these days without being called a racist. So the best thing is not to shut up and not say anything at all. And um, (laughs) honestly, in the moment, I didn't know how to respond to that. Because I was oh. the token immigrant person on that table, so and mm. uh, because that 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 controversy surrounded immigrants and how they don't care. Well, here's here's the thing. I said I always tell people the only people who are afraid of being called racist are those who potentially have racist things to say. <laughs> because literally, like, why are you going to be afraid otherwise? You know that means in your own heart, in your own thought processes at some level there's an awareness that what you have to say or that what's what's calling to you to be to express is actually racist there's there's no reason to be afraid otherwise and and sorry i know and i say and for those who do say something inadvertently that wasn't their intention it's not something that they meant how hard is it to say i'm sorry Mm. this wasn't my intention but i understand the impact Mm -hmm. it is literally not hard yeah. But it's it means that you're going to set aside your own ego to do something that will make you uncomfortable. But that's needed. Mm-hmm. Especially as a teacher. And I was going it back to teachers. I said, if I can admit to my students, you know what? My bad. I messed up. I apologize. I, this is what I in- intended. But here's what happened. And you know what? I always tell them what Maya Angelou says. It's like when you know better, you do better. So I didn't know better before. I didn't know that saying that would be hurtful. Okay, I apologize. I didn't know, but I understand the pain it caused. I'm going to do better. Done. But it's just, it, it's it's the inability, I think, to put aside egos. Mm-hmm. Um, to put aside, like, to be humble. Like, I don't know everything. I'm still, you know, I'm still, you know, navigating life just like everybody else. There's so much I don't know, for example. Like, I don't know a lot about my students. And there's times where I say something that was... Really, in hindsight, you know, as much as I try to be careful, that it's going to be really insensitive. And you acknowledge it and you move forward. That was Dr. Muna Saleh. You'll often find her throwing massive shade at her sisters on Twitter. And you will sometimes find me joining in the fun. Until next time, this is your host, Mifra Abid, on the Cross Her Table podcast. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and basically wherever you get your podcasts from. We are, of course, also available on our website, acrosshertable.com. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us, folks.